1951, the philosopher Bertrand Russell published a list of Ten Commandments for teachers. When I heard them recently, I was struck by how relevant they are for system safety. When I quote them here, I've omitted a couple of words to improve the flow, but the original meaning remains. Number one, do not feel absolutely certain of anything. Number two, do not think it worthwhile to proceed by concealing evidence, for the evidence is sure to come to light. Number three, never try to discourage thinking, for you are sure to succeed. Number four, when you meet with opposition, endeavour to overcome it by argument and not by authority. For a victory dependent on authority is unreal and illusory. Number five, have no respect for the authority of others, for there are always contrary authorities to be found. Number six, do not use power to suppress opinions you think are pernicious. Number seven, do not fear to be eccentric in opinion, for every opinion now accepted was once eccentric. Number eight, find more pleasure in intelligent dissent than in passive agreement. For if you value intelligence as you should, the former implies a deeper agreement than the latter. Number nine, be scrupulously truthful, even if the truth is inconvenient, for it is more inconvenient when you try to conceal it. Number 10, do not feel envious of the happiness of those who live in a fool's paradise, for only a fool will think that it is happiness. You're listening to DisasterCast, Episode 4. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. The main topic for this episode is safety culture. In the first section, we'll be discussing Chernobyl, the first major accident where poor safety culture was invoked, as a significant part of the explanation. Next, we'll have a bit of a chat about what safety culture means. In the final segment, we'll talk about a particular safety culture initiative called Zero Harm. When I recently revisited the Chernobyl accident, I realised that a number of the things that I believed about the accident simply weren't true. What had happened was the International Atomic Energy Agency had published two different reports into Chernobyl one shortly after the accident, and a second report a number of years later, which actually revised some of the technical findings of the first report. So this article now is based on the second of those reports. 
Unit 4 of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was an RBMK-1000 reactor. This model of reactor had four serious design weaknesses which were to play a part in the accident. The first weakness was to do with supplying power to cool the reactor. Boiling water reactors typically need an external source of power to cool the reactor after it stops generating power itself. Just like the reactors at Fukushima, Chernobyl drew this power from the main electricity grid and relied on diesel generators as backup. However, the backup wasn't good enough. It was well known that the diesel generators would be too slow to start if they were actually needed in an emergency. The solution was for the reactor itself to keep supplying power for a bit longer as it shut down, to give the generators time to start. At the time of the accident, this solution still wasn't working, and the operators were conducting yet another in a series of tests to try to make it work. The second weakness was to do with a parameter called the steam void coefficient of reactivity. Boiling water reactors contain pockets of steam called voids. The proportion of voids varies according to the amount of power the reactor is producing. If the coefficient is negative, then voids reduce the power of the reactor. If the coefficient is positive, then voids increase the power of the reactor. Can you see where this is going? If your reactor starts to produce too much power, it will produce more void. If the steam coefficient is negative, then this extra void will help to slow things down. If the steam coefficient is positive, then the extra void will result in more power, which results in more void, which results in more power, and so on. Chernobyl, like all good reactors, was designed to operate with a negative coefficient. However, this coefficient depended on exactly how the reactor was operated. It was actually fairly easy to accidentally start operating with a positive coefficient. The third weakness was to do with the control rods. Control rods are used to regulate how much power a reactor produces, and, if necessary, to completely shut down the reactor. They do this by absorbing radiation so that it can't interact with other fuel to keep the reaction going. An emergency shutdown is called a scram. When a scram happens, all of the control rods are inserted as far as possible. On a typical reactor, this takes less than 4 seconds. On Chernobyl, it regularly took 18 seconds. Worse, the first part of the control rods was actually less absorbent than the water they were displacing. This means that the first few seconds of a scram actually made the reaction bigger rather than shutting it down. The fourth weakness was to do with the sensors and instrumentation. You're probably getting the picture by now that a reactor core is not simply a uniform block of fuel producing energy. In fact, different parts of the core can be producing different amounts of energy and in different directions. Measuring this neutron flux is important for precise control of the reaction. It is particularly important if the reaction has been going on for a while because the reactor builds up a substance called xenon-135, 
which is like a poison slowing down the reaction. The sensors at Chernobyl were fine if the reactor was operating at full power, but when it got below 10%, the operators were basically flying by the seat of their pants, using experience and judgement rather than sensors to tell them what was going on inside the reactor. So keep those four things in mind. Power to cool the reactor, the positive void coefficient, the control rods that made things worse for a few seconds, and the lack of sensor information at low power. Here's what happened on 25th and 26th of April, 1986. The operations staff were getting ready to shut down the reactor and to conduct another test to see if they could power the cooling pumps without external power. Power in their reactor started to decrease, heading towards a complete controlled shutdown. At that moment, another power station went off the grid, and Chernobyl was needed to supply power, so they paused the shutdown. Eventually, they started to shut down again, but this time they went a bit too quickly. They were in fact shutting down too fast to do the test, so they had to speed the reactor back up again. By now, the reactor was at very low power, so the sensors weren't helping and controlling the reaction was difficult. To keep the reaction going, after all the slowing down then speeding up again, all the control rods were fully out. Most importantly, the reactor now had a positive void coefficient. We don't actually know exactly what happens next. Probably, the cooling pumps started to cavitate, sending more steam bubbles into the reactor core. Possibly there were local hotspots in the core, creating voids as well. Suddenly, the reaction starts to speed up. Faster reaction means more voids, which means faster reaction. And at this moment, either the computer or the engineer hits the scram button. And for a few seconds, the reaction goes even faster. The actual explosion when it comes is from steam pressure, just like a boiler exploding. A second explosion happens shortly after. That second explosion may have been steam, or it may have been hydrogen exploding. Chernobyl has one other design flaw that I haven't mentioned yet. The containment around the reactor was woefully inadequate. The first explosion rips the roof off the reactor building, sending burning bitumen everywhere. With the containment breached, the second explosion throws bits of reactor core all over the neighbourhood. So that's a physical description of what happened. This is an episode about safety culture though, so let's talk about the people. In the aftermath of Chernobyl, lots of organisational errors and procedural violations were identified. This led commentators, including the official report, to blame the accident on poor safety culture. Nick Pidgeon, one of my favourite authors on safety culture, writes, Of course, in the late 1980s, this hypothesis stemmed much more from a rhetorical attempt to assure Western publics that Chernobyl could not happen here, than from any direct or systemic social science analysis of the deep and complex issues involved in this question. 
He then says in a footnote, It is ironic in this regard that, some six years previously, Soviet nuclear engineers had concluded from their analysis of the Three Mile Island incident that such an event could not happen in the Soviet Union because the culture there emphasised safety over production and short-term return on capital. Pidgeon argues that safety culture is a real thing, but not a simple thing. In particular, he doesn't think that it's a simple linear scale where organisations with bad culture have accidents and organisations with good culture avoid them. The first IAEA report, called INSAG-1, places a lot of blame on the operators. It points to rules that were broken, safety systems that were turned off, and procedures that weren't followed. INSAG-7, released in 1992, retracts many of these claims. It's based primarily on a Soviet Union report, which doesn't excuse the operators, but does focus on the reactor design. In particular, it talks about the interaction between the designers, the regulators, and the operators. If the designers had been forced to defend the safety of the plant rigorously, then it would be clear to everyone how much safe operation depended on the operators. At the very least, this could have resulted in better sensors, so the operators understood what was going on, and better training, so the operators knew what to do about it. There are a lot of claims made about the effects of Chernobyl. Many of these claims are clearly politically driven, with opponents of nuclear power exaggerating the consequences, and supporters of nuclear power trivialising the effects. My description here comes from a 2011 United Nations Scientific Committee report on the effects of atomic radiation. There were 600 workers on the site at the time of the explosion. Of these, 134 received very high doses of radiation. Two engineers were killed by the explosion directly, and 28 workers, mainly firefighters, died shortly after the accident. The rest of those with high exposure, that's around 100 people, had serious long-term health impairment, for example cataracts and cancers. In the region around Chernobyl, there have been 6,000 cases of thyroid cancer. Some of these would have occurred naturally, but at the very least a high portion can be said to be directly caused by the accident. Background rates of other problems such as leukaemia and cataracts have increased in the workers who were living nearby or were involved in the cleanup. It's much harder to show a direct causal relationship here, since the rates of these problems were increasing anyway. Everyone dies of something eventually. Probably, Chernobyl had some impact on the health of around half a million people. For most of them, the mental distress was greater than any physical symptoms. That isn't to downplay the effect, though. I think it says something important, that whilst it's hard to show a direct link between Chernobyl and cancer rates, it is possible to show a direct mental link between Chernobyl and mental health effects. These effects were very large and were obviously caused by the accident. There's some controversy over whether the firefighters and rescue workers understood what was going on. I'd like to believe that they did. 
They were responding to a massive explosion at a nuclear power plant. They didn't need to be told that the smoke was radioactive or that the chunks of burning graphite were really bad news. Lieutenant Vladimir Pravik led the firefighters and died a week later. Three engineers re-entered the plant in diving suits to drain the water pools and prevent further steam explosions. They for sure knew exactly what they were getting themselves in for. Alexei Anonenko, Valery Bezpilov and Boris Baranov swam through a flooded, burning nuclear power plant. Their lamp failed, so it was in the dark that they found the valves they needed to open, completed their work and saved lots of lives. All three later died of radiation poisoning. Very few people would disagree that safety culture is important, but there's no clear agreement on what safety culture actually is. In this section, I hope to provide a bit of background on how the idea developed and what we mean when we talk about safety culture. Our story begins in the 1970s, before we even had a label for safety culture. At that time, researchers such as Barry Turner were very interested in man-made disasters and were describing accidents as sociological processes rather than technical sequences of events. Around the same time, the concept of organisational climate began to develop. This would later become fashionable under the label of corporate culture. Organisational climate tried to explain differences within companies, or within branches of the same company, mainly geared towards explaining the amazing success of certain companies. The first person to talk directly about safety climate was called Dov Zohar, who in 1990 published a paper proposing a questionnaire for measuring safety climate in factories. The factors Zohar was measuring were perceived importance of safety training programs, perceived management attitudes towards safety, perceived effects of safe conduct on promotion, perceived level of risk at the workplace, perceived effects of the required work pace on safety, perceived status of the safety officer, perceived effects of safe conduct on social status, and perceived status of the safety committee. Zohar was able to show that these factors were consistent, in the sense that the variation within each factory was smaller than the variation between factories. He wasn't able to show that the factors directly predicted safety, because he didn't have a reliable way of measuring safety. This is a problem which has plagued safety culture research ever since. Safety culture surveys are definitely measuring something real, but we don't know exactly what the measurements are telling us. Zohar's paper didn't attract a lot of attention, until the first International Atomic Energy Agency report into Chernobyl talked about safety culture. The IAEA report drew a clear distinction between merely carrying out duties and carrying out duties correctly, alertly, with full knowledge, and with due regard for safety consequences. Bingo. This is a problem that we can all empathise with. 
There's a real difference between safety as a rigorous intellectual investigation, trying to understand and deal with hazards, and safety as a check-the-box, comply-with-the-regulation exercise. That difference is what we mean by safety culture. Let's deal with some language issues to try to make things a bit clearer. Issue number one. Don't worry about the difference between safety culture and safety climate. Some organisations and documents claim to know the difference, but they really can't agree on what that difference is. For all intents and purposes, safety culture and safety climate are interchangeable. Issue number two. What we really care about is the way people behave. We can't control or predict behaviour directly, which is why we're interested in beliefs and attitudes. When some people talk about culture, they're talking about the behaviour, the way things are done around here. When other people talk about culture, they're talking about the underlying beliefs, norms, heroes and symbols. The clearest way to talk about it, in my opinion, is to recognise both. So when I talk about culture, I'm discussing a set of shared beliefs which have behavioural consequences. Issue number three. It should be fairly obvious that all organisations have culture. This is particularly important for safety because safety activities are open loop. The only guarantee we have that safety activities are done properly is that they're done diligently by competent people. It doesn't really make sense, then, to talk about an absent safety culture. To say that an organisation has no safety culture is really just a shorthand for saying that the beliefs in the organisation tend to lead to behaviours which tend to be bad for safety. Poor safety culture is easy to recognise in hindsight. Some big accident investigations, such as the King's Cross Underground Fire, Piper Alpha, Continental Express 2574, Potter's Bar and Space Shuttle Challenger have all identified safety culture as a key factor. What we'd really like to know, though, is whether we can spot safety culture problems ahead of time. If we can find problems, we'd also like to know what we can do about it. When we try to measure or influence culture, we need to be mindful that awareness and attitude can have a strong influence over whether our organisational systems work, but they're never a substitute for those organisational systems. Equipment design, maintenance, procedures, conditions, communication, training, workload and pressure are all systemic factors that are going to influence safety performance. We care about culture because it's going to influence our ability to improve these factors, not because it's a replacement for getting these factors right. The following list of cultural issues is my own, compiled from a number of sources. I'll link to these sources in the show notes. Mainly I'm drawing on James Reason, Nick Pidgeon, James Rufton, Andrew Hopkins, and Sidney Decker. I'm going to highlight five dimensions where beliefs have an important impact on behaviours, which in turn have an important impact on safety. The first dimension is the priority safety is given in the organisation. What we're looking for is a realistic appreciation that safety is good business. 
This could be because the organisation knows how much accidents and incidents truly cost and wants to minimise this cost. It could be that they know that one big accident would be a business disaster and want to manage that risk. It could be that safety is what distinguishes them from their competitors and they see it as a competitive edge. The common factor in all of these attitudes is that they are realistic. What we don't want to see is slogans such as safety is our number one priority. Okay, if you're a safety regulator, maybe that's true. For anyone else, it's a lie. And it's not a lie that your employees are going to believe. I've got two benchmarks for measuring the priority placed on safety. Status and time. Very low status is obvious from organisational charts. If your head of safety works for your head of quality and compliance, who works for your head of HR, that's a really bad sign. If someone at director level has safety as their primary responsibility, that's much better, so we move on to the second part of the test, which is to ask how much status safety personnel have. It's often the case that safety has a high position in the structure, but low status in reality. Time is a real giveaway when people claim to care about safety. How often do senior staff send someone to deputise for them at safety functions? Do they cancel attendance at safety training at the last minute, or duck out to take important phone calls? The most precious commodities a senior manager has are time and attention, so how they spend these things is evidence of their true priorities. The second dimension in safety culture is how self-conscious the organisation is. This ties together two ideas that James Reason discusses. A positive culture is one that is informed, and to be informed you must be reporting. How well do individuals understand the hazards that they're dealing with? How well does the organisation understand the strengths and weaknesses of its own safety management? The key benchmark here is how people react when issues are raised. If the immediate response is to challenge the person raising the issue, or to dismiss their concerns, this is a really bad sign. In a positive safety culture, most issues will be resolved without recourse to a formal reporting system. This doesn't mean that the reporting system is empty, though. People will be using the system to get advice, or to report experiences that may be helpful to others. The third dimension is how highly the organisation thinks of itself. When you ask an organisation if they manage safety well, it's a bad sign if they give an unqualified yes. Incidentally, it's also a bad sign if the organisation gives an unqualified no. The ideal, of course, is an organisation that has confidence it's doing fairly well, but always believes that they can and should be doing better. For the fourth dimension, we have the organisation's approach to competence. A positive culture encourages and rewards expertise. You can see this most easily in the way that training budgets are managed. An average organisation will pay for training where there's a clearly identified need and benefit. A poor organisation will limit training even when there is a clear need usually by giving reasons relating to short-term pressure on time or budgets. A really good organisation 
will encourage participation in conferences and standards working groups. They value their staff taking a leading role in the engineering community. One very simple policy I've seen recently is paying staff a bonus for achieving chartered engineer status. It works as more than a motivating tool. It's also a direct recognition that individual professional development is good for the company. The fifth dimension in safety culture is belief in the importance of rules and compliance. This is an area where there isn't an obvious good or bad end of the scale. In many respects, bureaucracy is a necessary transition from a poor safety culture to a good safety culture. In a poor culture, rules aren't followed. A culture of compliance is an improvement, but it has a lot of negative connotations. Yes, you want people to follow rules, but it's much better if they understand the reasons for the rules and participate in making the rules. A genuinely good culture is flexible. It's resilient to pressure or disruption in ways that a bureaucracy simply isn't. There are more aspects to safety culture that I haven't talked about here. There's probably a whole podcast episode about what people in an organisation mean when they talk about safety, in particular the distinction between system safety and occupational health and safety. There's another whole episode of material about reporting systems and the concept of a just culture. To finish though, let's return to why safety culture matters. Most of the safety improvements that we are likely to make in an organisation are structural. This involves changing roles and responsibilities, introducing or improving reporting systems, changing procedures for safety analysis or project review, all that sort of thing. These changes will only be improvements if we understand the culture we're trying to work with. Recognising the culture and preparing the culture for the structural change are very important. On the other hand, treating safety culture as an abstract thing to be measured and improved on its own can be very counterproductive. The five issues I've talked about here are beyond individuals. That means that you can't train your workforce to believe these things. You can't encourage them through briefings and newsletters. Attitudes and beliefs have a real impact on behaviour, but the reverse is also true. Changing the attitudes and beliefs of others probably requires understanding and changing your own behaviour. As something out of the blue this week, let's talk about the concept of zero harm. If you've read job ads for safety managers or company safety policy documents, you're almost certain to see the phrase zero harm cropping up a lot. If you look carefully, you'll also find a lot of cynicism, particularly among safety professionals. The key point of dispute seems to be whether zero harm is aspirational and therefore good, or unrealistic and therefore bad. The first thing to recognise is that zero harm is actually a label not a policy in itself. More specifically, it's a trademarked label by Balfour Beatty for their 2012 safety policy. This policy has some good points and some bad points. 
The policy involves six actions. Leading, simplifying, rethinking, tracking, involving, and learning. With solid processes behind them, that's actually a pretty good summary of what's needed to drive good safety management systems with a positive culture. The leading element is easy to say but harder to do. Their policy talks about leaders being committed to zero harm and inspiring their people. The simplifying element is about focusing on safety systems and procedures that are genuinely useful. That's actually really important if a focus on safety is going to be sustained over the longer term. In terms of safety culture, you could say that this contributes to placing a realistic priority on safety activity. Rethinking is about challenging the status quo. That's kind of where the zero harm slogan is pointing as well. Accidents don't just happen. They happen because our systems and situations are never good enough. So any accident is a sign that we need to improve. Tracking is paradoxically about setting up realistic local ways of measuring safety performance. Kind of at odds with the zero harm slogan, but important for a learning organisation. Involving is about personal ownership and responsibility. I'm in two minds about this one. At a local level, personal responsibility can very easily turn into blaming people for being involved in accidents. On the other hand, empowering staff to make decisions about the best way to implement company policy is great and important for a good safety culture. Learning is the converse of tracking. As well as measuring performance, you want to be recognising good performance and sharing those practices through the organisation. So, six actions, all of them really quite good. Unfortunately, zero harm is not just about those actions. In fact, when other organisations have copied zero harm, they've often forgotten about the actions and just copied the slogan. No one can guarantee zero harm. To do this, you would have to have zero risk. So we're not talking about a realistic safety target. If we were talking about safety targets, we'd be talking about risk measures and levels of acceptable risk. If zero harm was our safety target, then it would almost certainly imply that we were focusing our attention on high-likelihood, low-consequence events. We'd be patting ourselves on the back for our number of lost time injuries, instead of being concerned about systemic risks. In fact, to some extent, safety targets are what Balfour Beattie was talking about. Their policy includes seven commitments, which include eliminating fatal risks and eliminating hazards. You can't actually achieve this, and organisations which set out to try typically end up over-managing some hazards and under-managing others. For any given hazard, eliminating the hazard is ideal, but it's very seldom actually possible. More often, we accept that the hazard has to be there and work to minimise the risk associated with it. My personal opinion is that the label zero harm diverts attention to the unrealistic aspiration and away from the realistic pragmatic steps that build a safer culture. We don't actually have good evidence, though, 
on whether aspirational slogans like zero harm have a net positive or net negative influence. The difficulty is that organisations usually introduce the slogan is at the same time as they try to introduce structural change, and it's hard for anyone to distinguish between the two. Perhaps the best test when someone talks about zero harm is to ask them about the six actions. Okay, so they've got a zero harm policy. What are they doing to educate and motivate their leaders? What are they doing to simplify safety and make sure it adds value? Which parts of their safety management systems are they rethinking? What practical realistic measures are they using to track safety? How are staff empowered to be involved? What do they see as the best opportunities for learning? If they've thought about those things and are taking appropriate action, I don't really care if they call their safety program Zero Harm or our official and boringly entitled initiative to improve safety management. Although zero harm does roll easier off the tongue. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. You'll notice that this podcast doesn't have a donate button or an awkward begging slot. That's because the initial production and server costs have already been taken care of, thanks to the folks at I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. I really do need your help in promoting the show, though. I'd like to think that if you're listening, you find the show helpful or interesting, and would like others to listen too. Please take a moment to tweet about the show or to rate it on iTunes. Feedback and questions are always appreciated. You can email us on feedback at disastercast.co.uk or find us on Twitter as disaster underscore cast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 